It's a beautiful song. Now let's pray. God, we ask for your uh, insight into this topic today and um, where our feelings are mixed. I pray that you would um, separate the wheat from the chaff. I pray that you would help us to be clear on truth. I pray that we would be lovers of the truth. And in this way, we just want to sit at your feet. I recognize, Lord, my great need for you to help me. And so may you help me um, unpack the words of Jesus in a very clear way and so that you would be finally our teacher today. And may we be wide open to what you want to do to change us and change our world because we met together this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, welcome. I'm glad you're here to the uh, tail end of a brief uh, two-week series. We're talking about the uh, very hard things Jesus said when he got very exclusive. And you heard it here first. You have it on the authority of AC3 that the apocalypse is coming in 2016. So uh, that's probably really uh, good, good to know. And so in light of that, let's talk about heaven, shall we? We all need to get ready. Um, I want to read for you one of the most shocking things that Jesus ever said. And he said it in the context of a conversation he's having with his disciples. It's on the eve of his execution. And um, it's a really inspiring speech. It begins with him saying, you need to trust me when it comes to ultimate things. And um, he says that uh, he assures his disciples that they too have a place at the Father's side one day. And then he ends this short and inspiring speech with the words, and you know the way there, that is to the Father's side, and you know the way there. And Thomas, who's always the earnest and honest question in the group, is realizing that Jesus has just narrowed down the whole heaven thing to a very, very particular point. You know the way. And he goes, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. Uh, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus says this most shocking of statements. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So AC3, the exclusivism in this response to Thomas is not short of breathtaking. It's, um, it's impossible to deny or to get around. What Jesus is saying here is simply that there is no salvation. There is no hope for bliss in the life to come, however you define it. There is no nirvana. There is no happy hunting grounds. There is no final enlightenment. There is no paradise. There is no Valhalla. There is no Zion. There is no heaven. Except through himself. He was making himself the key. Now, now let's just soak in that for a little bit. And just as a, as a modern 21st century American citizen, I, it just soak in the offense of it. Because that's offensive, isn't it? I mean, just want to say to Jesus, Jesus, really? Really? Do you know how many people you just cut out with that one statement? Really, Jesus? You know how many people you're damning with that one line? You're saying that anyone who's on any other path other than your path is on the wrong path. That's what you're saying. I mean, it's terribly intolerant. It's an offense. It's the original sin against religious pluralism. Absolutely. I mean, and, and Jesus, you're going to make people feel bad on top of it all. You know, we can at least get one thing out of the way when we read a line like that. You know that sort of, you know, uh, frustration that you carry against Christians and their dumb bumper stickers, their one-way bumper stickers? At least we can admit this, that they didn't make that stuff at a fundamentalist conference in the 1950s. They just got it from the source. Jesus was the first one to say the whole one-way line. That's, that's Jesus' line. That's not really Christian's line. Now, this is John's gospel. A lot of people would may want to modify this a little bit. And the begins uh, by uh, saying, well, John wrote late in the first century, so 
maybe other Gospels written earlier, closer to the time of events, are more accurate and maybe don't reflect this rigid exclusivism of John. So let's go to one of the earlier Gospels, Matthew, uh, to test the theory. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 11. This may be written about 30 years before John wrote his Gospel. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Jesus says, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father. And no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In fact, AC3, if you study this whole uh, salvation particularism of Jesus, what you're going to find is that an entire study of the Bible uh, shows Him the letters of the New Testament as well. The only reasonable conclusion is simply this, that Jesus of Nazareth simply saw heaven as a very narrow door and that he was the key. That's just the implication. That's just how he saw himself. By the way, that would also then explain that when the disciples begin traipsing around the Roman Empire, they go with incredible urgency. Why? The urgency is related to the exclusivity. Right? That just makes sense. If there's only one way to get reconciled to God, then, there, then there's no other hope. So everybody's got to know, and they got to know as quickly as possible, and that was the disciples' whole mandate. So the urgency was tied to the exclusivity. That explains then why uh, Peter would get up and preach these words in the early church, Acts chapter 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Paul will then say a few years after that, 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. I, I just don't know how you get around it, friends. I mean, real Christianity has always claimed that right relationship with God happens in one way. It just happens in one way. And we'll see in a bit why it has to happen in one way. There's a logical reason, and it's not arrogance, as to why it must happen in one way. And by the way, we didn't make this up. So Christians are not haters, or they're not being intolerant, or they're not trying to be offensive when they just simply begin to talk about the exclusivity of salvation. Now, you don't have to agree with it, but what I don't think you can disagree with is that Jesus saw it this way. This is how he saw it. He understood that life comes through him. He is the access point to life with a capital L. So I want to offer an explanation today. I mean, that's what I want that will rankle the modern pluralistic spirit, so much so that we need to offer a, an explanation and ask ourselves, is this consistent with reason? Is it consistent with morality? Like, is God even being fair to narrow things down like this? We have to ask questions uh, like that, and I think that uh, we have good answers if we look into it. Well, help is a metaphor. So I'm just going to give you a metaphor that will just sort of be overarching, for the entire um, uh, talk this morning. And um, it goes to, uh, the metaphor is kind of hinged on movies. And, and I'm a big, big uh, watcher of end of the world, apocalyptic types. You had me at dystopic future apocalypse, you know. So you don't have to give me more than 30 seconds for the trailer and I'm in. So I now want you to think about the special movies that are the end of the world disaster flicks that revolve around disease. So think zombie apocalypse. Anybody here a zombie fan here this morning? You didn't admit that in church. Wow, that's very brave of you. That's good. So, uh, so think zombie apocalypse, think, uh, think patient zero, uh, think pandemic, okay? And so all these end-of-the-world uh, disaster flicks revolving around disease always have the same, right? Like this. Some exotic strain of disease 
usually invented by the government for nefarious purpose. Escapes contain and threatens to kill everyone in the world, and it's a race against time until we can find the cure before all humanity is lost. Does this sound familiar? Right? Just retread that plot line over and over and over again. I'll give you two examples. Uh, the movie Outbreak. So the plot line here is a disease threatens to wipe out a and the government has a workable vaccine, but they don't want to use it because they want to use the disease potentially as biological warfare, and so they're just going to firebomb the town to hide the whole program. Okay, great line. There's another movie, uh, Contagion. Similarly, has a strange disease that threatens not just the town, but the entire world. Now, in this movie, uh, the CDC eventually gets a workable vaccine, but it's only distributed through a lottery based on your birth, which leads to all kinds of drama in that movie. So think about these end of the world disaster flicks that revolve around disease, okay? There's really three things that make these movies interesting. Number one is who has the disease? You know, num number two, is there a cure? And number three, who has the cure? Right? That's what's driving those movies is those three uh, questions. By the way, those three questions then will form the backdrop of an answer to the exclusivity question of Jesus. Who has the disease? Is there a cure? And who gets the cure? Because when we begin to understand the answer to those questions in relationship to salvation, it will begin to start to make sense, the one way of Jesus. First of all, who has the disease? So when it comes to salvation, we're talking about the question of a disease that is spiritual in nature, obviously, not viral. And it's supremely important because the disease we're talking about is more than just fatal, right? To miss out on salvation is to have a a spiritual terminal, to be terminal spiritually in that sense. So the problem that we have with understanding about missing out on salvation, missing out on, let's say, a one-way, a, a cure, is that we get tripped up on medieval artwork about hell. All the pictures of, you know, demons gnawing on, you know, the damned, <laughs> that just, you know, it just becomes such a caricature that you just write the whole thing off. So those have not really helped us much. But then it really is, I think, helpful if we can kind of strip away the imagery. And there's one verse in the Bible from the Apostle Paul that kind of talks about a salvationless eternity. And it describes it without any imagery. So you kind of get the blunt force of what does it mean to miss out on salvation? To have the disease of being spiritually terminal. And he describes it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, they will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. So if you want to know what hell is like, Paul says, I want you to think about a place where God isn't. There's no metaphor in this. There's no imagery that you have to, you just have to conceptually imagine the place where God is not. And now you've, now you've understood all you really need to understand about hell, because hell, as you look at the images in the Bible, one, you know, lake of fire, now it's the outer darkness, now it's the place outside. Now all these uh, images, if you took them all very literally, they would, in some sense, be mutually contradictory. So the point then must be, this is really not a place you want to be. And you want then to escape the diagnosis of having the disease that gets you there. It is simply the place where God is not. Now who has then, who has the disease? Who's on their way there? Who is spiritually terminal? That's a really important question. Who has the disease? Is it viral? Is it, is it moving around? Can I get it? 
And friends, sad truth is, is that on Christianity, your situation is worse than in any other religious system because it's not only viral, you've already got it. You've already got it on Christianity. Now, other religious systems uh, paint the human predicament in much more happy terms. There's always a problem that needs to be solved in Buddhism and Islam, in Hinduism and in, in Judaism and so on and so forth. But in Christianity, your disease, your situation is worse than any of them. And I can just admit that baldly today. It's not maybe a selling point, but I do think it's a truthful assessment. For we look at this in the Bible saying that everybody is susceptible. Nobody is immune. Everybody is infected. Everybody's terminal. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. It's pretty bleak. Now, Paul is not just saying this out of his own head. He's actually quoting here. What do you think he's quoting? He's quoting the Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament. So in other words, this is the assessment of the human spirit and the prediction of the human soul from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah will say, the human soul, heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And Paul is re re simply regurgitating this bleak assessment of our spiritual state before God. Now you might say, wait, that can't be right. That can't be right. I mean, I, you think to yourself, you think I'm not evil. I'm not a, you know, a flaming you know, Satan worshiper. Uh, I, I'm a pretty nice person. I, I'm, I'm nicer than my neighbor, I think. Uh, and you think of your neighbor as a law-abiding citizen and that whole deal. And so how can that possibly be? Well, listen, friends. Uh, compared to the perfection of God, on, on the Bible's view, even the law-abiding citizen, in fact, maybe especially the law-abiding citizen, has an awareness of how far they fall short. In fact, if you pursue a good life, more than the person who's just blandly going through life, trying not to trip anybody else up, trying not to land in jail, or trying not to offend too many people. More than that person, if you are genuinely trying to not just be good, but trying to be perfect, if you're trying to be perfect, this assessment of your soul will become your song. You look in the, the life of the greatest saints that we know, Thomas Aquinas and Mother Teresa and even Billy Graham and all the modern uh, saints that we know, the people have really pressed into goodness. They pressed into law abiding as far as they could possibly go. And what's their self-assessment? I'm getting really excited this morning. What's their self-assessment? Their self-assessment is, I have the disease. If our best philosophers and our best citizens and our best saints make that as their self-assessment, what are you going to say about that? Are you going to say, wow, they, are, they have terrible self-esteem. They should have gone through uh, American public education. They would have felt great about themselves. Uh, uh, no, friends, they're not people with a low self-esteem. They're people who have a scientific, a scientifically accurate understanding of their own fallenness. That's what pursuing the law does. In fact, Paul will say, next verse, verse 20 of chapter, Three of Romans, for no one can ever be, be made right with God by doing what the law commands. They can't ever be good enough. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law then, rather than becoming a pathway to heaven, the law just simply becomes a mirror. and says, here, here's you. you. Here's you. For everyone has sinned 
We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Friends, this is not a disaster movie. This is a disaster. Because it means every single human being stands justly condemned before God. If you'll forgive me making light of it, we're all zombies. We've all got the bug. We're all sin-dead zombies. We're, we're all carriers of a disease whose main symptom is separation from God and alienation from each other and whose main prognosis is death. Now, I'm saying this, and I understand I'm painting the bad news here, so maybe we want to lighten the load a little bit or maybe get around it somehow. So we say, this is Paul. It's the rantings of a century apostle who, you know, was a bit of an aesthetic and so we can write it off that way. Gentle Jesus would never say such things. Gentle, loving Jesus would never have such a bleak prognosis on the entire human race. Let's go to Jesus, shall we? Remember that same passage, Matthew chapter 11, where in which Jesus is making the access point to the Father exclusively through him. Remember that? Let's go to context. Context is really amazing. It kind of gives us a sense of what uh, is the impact of what Jesus is trying to say. The context of him saying those words, was that he was standing looking at the villages around the Sea of Galilee, which is essentially his stomping grounds, his ministry, or his, his backyard turf. And the villages around the Sea of Galilee had names like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin and Magdala and Gennesaret. And in 2009, I went to the Sea of Galilee, and some of those villages are dig sites, they're archaeological sites. Some of them, like Magdala, are still bustling little towns. I'm there on the top of Mount Arable. Just off to the right is the village of Magdala, if you, if you went even further right, the, the lake is just out of view. So it could have been that at a place like that on Mount Arabel, Jesus would have stood and would have had visual access in one sweeping view of all the villages where in which he spoke. He could have looked out over his mission field. And he would have looked at those villages and recalled what happened there. And what happened in places like Chorazan and Bethsaida and Capernaum? What happened there in those little fishing villages out of the lake? Well, where Jesus preached grace and where he did astounding acts that amazed people, in those very places, people mostly rejected him, mostly called him names, mostly thought that he was too holy, too worldly, or demon-possessed, and they rejected him. Now, what do you think, Jesus, let's say standing up there on Mount Arabel, looking out over his mission field, looking out at those villages that dotted the sea, what do you think he would have said as he spoke over them generally? What, what would have come out of his mouth? You might think, well, he would say something like, it's okay, everyone, I'm, I'm going to make sure you all get to heaven, even if you reject me and refuse to repent of your unloving, selfish, materialistic, violent behavior. I'm going to pull you in by force. I just love you that much. Do you, do you think that he said that? Well, whatever you think he should have said, this is what he did say. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, very bad places, by the way, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will go down to Hades. Jesus said that. We kind of have to grapple with this, friends, because maybe you thought to yourself, okay, I can my brain around Jesus, thinking of himself as the only way. But in some sense, maybe there's a universalism under that because everyone gets in on the one way. And so if everyone gets in on the one way, the offensiveness of the exclusive one way is no longer offensive because everybody's in. 
But friends, when Jesus says stuff like this, he just sort of contradicts that kind of interpretation, doesn't he? You can't get around it, friends. Jesus thought that there were going to be people who were going to miss out on life. Jesus thought that people were spiritually terminal. Jesus thought that. In fact, he talked more about that threat than anybody else in the entire Bible. So here's Jesus affirming the idea that because we freely rebel against God's goodness, sin has gone viral and everybody's infected and the prognosis is bleak. That's the truth of Jesus. That's the truth of Christian scripture. And it's strangely the one doctrine that it's resisted the most and yet it's the one doctrine that is empirically verified the most. I mean, look around. Look around the news every night and you see what the human is capable of doing. And what do you call that? Do you call that a result of uh, ignorance? Do you call that a result of uh, not having enough food to eat? You know, as they found out, you know, all the terrorists of 9-11 were from the relatively wealthy Wahhabi tribe in, in Saudi Arabia. They all had, the, they had plenty of food and water, and it wasn't about, you know, a, a cry out against, you know, the oppression. Of, they had all sorts of money. There was evil there. Not just ignorance, not just a lack of sustenance. There was evil. And that evil, friends, Jesus says, comes from the human heart. So, um, before you rail against Jesus being too exclusive, I think you might have to be honest with yourself and say, I have a problem with Jesus being too inclusive. I have a problem with him including everybody in his bleak diagnosis. That's my problem. I'm not, so, I'm not so worried, really, not first, about his exclusivity, ex- exclusivity. First, I'm worried about his inclusivity. He includes everybody. And that's your, maybe your problem first. But then, friends, you ask yourself, uh, what seems to be closer to reality? What, what's, the, what's the diagnosis for the symptom that you have? What's the diagnosis for the symptom that the world has? And don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your children. Think about the people that you think you know the best. Think about yourself, because there's one soul you know. It's yours. There's one soul that you know with scientific precision, and that's yours. So when you ask yourself whether the diagnosis has any bearing in reality, just look inside and ask yourself the question, am I sick? Am I spiritually terminal? Just ask yourself the question. Once you, if, you, if you come to an agreement with Jesus on the diagnosis, now you have to ask yourself the question, is there a cure? Who's sick? Now, secondly, is there a cure? Now, here we've already seen that Jesus arrogantly, as it seems, was a cure, and it was him. But now we have an issue. Why must it be him? Why must it be him alone? Couldn't there be another cure? And again, let's go back to our apocalyptic movies. Look at the epidemic movies, and in them, how many uh, ways are there to cure the terrible virus outbreak that's threatening the entire world? How many? There's only one. There's only one way to fix the disease. There's only one team. There's only one serum to save the world. And it's a race against time. Now, you say, well, that's a movie. You know, it's fiction. But God forbid, if there ever were a super virus, AC3, you probably know these movies are based on scientific fact. For the immunity that comes from a vaccine is always disease-specific. The polio vaccine makes you immune to polio, but it will do nothing to, to prevent the common cold. As almost everybody in this room is immunized against polio, but uh, I, I, yeah, you're still sniffling. There. 
The, uh, the flu vaccine will work fine for flu. It will do nothing to immunize you against yellow fever. It, vaccines are disease-specific. Now, if you can agree that there's a disease that makes us all spiritually terminal, that separates us from God and one another, do you think that it's more likely or less likely that there's a bunch of cures for that or just one? Before you answer that, let me ask you this question. If our true diagnosis is the one that Christianity says it is, in other words, the problem has been diagnosed as separation from God, then how many ways are there to fix a broken relationship? There's only one. There's only one way to fix a broken relationship. I've got to be reconciled to God, and there's only one way to get reconciled. And we know that, not from talking about God, but from talking about each other. We know that we have broken relationships with spouses, ex-spouses, let's say. Children, co-workers, uh, higher-ups, people that we have great offense with. We understand how broken relationship works, and we understand how reconciliation works. There's a scientific nature to it. It's really, you can boil it down into a couple of things. That's why, by the way, we have a peacemaker conciliation ministry at our church. We can turn you on to that, and nine times out of ten, probably ten times out of ten, we're going to come down to two basic things that got to happen. The offending party has got to repent and turn from their offending behavior. And the offended party has to prove willing to forgive, to absorb the loss, and to take it in on themselves, and let it go. That has to happen. And, and if it doesn't happen, there could be partial reconciliation, but not full. Full reconciliation requires those two things. Okay, so if we can agree that the solution is reconciliation with God, then why is Jesus the specific cure to the reconciliation problem? follow reason because reconciliation only happens if God who is the offended party in all of our sin if God takes the offense if he does what's required for reconciliation in relationships that you know of in other words if he takes the offense if he's willing to forgive if he's willing to absorb the payment himself and let you go free if God is willing to do that then reconciliation can happen God has to do that or there's no reconciliation See, I can't very well butt into your problems. The problems that you've got with your neighbor, let's say you're you, know, you have a huge disagreement about your property line, and I can't very well jump into that and say, hey, friend, um, you guys are actually going to get along, and uh, why don't we just kiss and make up? Both of you, angry at each other, will suddenly be irate at someone more than each other. It'll be me. For the arrogance of inserting myself into your dispute, what business is it of mine? I solve the offense. I can't make restitution. I can't make this right. I can coach. That's all I could do. I can't say, voila, magically, you're healed. I can't do that. I have to be involved because there's no business of mine unless I am involved in the broken relationship, if, unless I'm one of the parties. The broken relationship has to be fixed by the involved person. And so this, again, is why Jesus must be the only way to the Father, because Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 20, 10, verse 20. Now, why does that matter? So understand, the exclusivity of salvation is tied directly to the unique divine personage of Jesus. For only God can agree to eliminate sins against God. Only God. He can't send in a third party, and this is part of the offense 
of believing that Jesus is something less than God, like a high angel or something like that. This is part of the offense because only, God doesn't send in somebody else to do his dirty work. God sends himself. And so it has to be Jesus. For only in Jesus was God reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. So in Jesus, we realize God is willing to forgive. In Jesus, we realize that God is willing to absorb the debt. In Jesus, we realize that God is willing to release the offense. That's, and that's the only way we know that it could get, ever get done. That's the only way we could have the assurance that the relationship could actually be fixed. So suddenly, friends, boom, this turns. It turns from bad news to amazing good news. Because if Jesus really is God reconciling the world, then that means that the job is done. And does that narrow salvation down? Absolutely, it narrows it down. But you know what? It turns it from an insecure thing to a totally secure thing. Because if it's on you, yeah, there might be 7 billion possible paths. If it's on God, yep, there's only one. But if it's on God, what God fixes, God fixes. If the Son sets you free, Jesus says, you'll be free indeed. And this is the great tragedy of moralistic attempts at salvation because how do you know when you've done enough? No one knows. And the great fear in the soul of most Muslims around the world as they describe it internally is the great wondering, have I done enough? Is Allah pleased? I don't know. Will you see paradise someday? Allah knows. But what if, what if you knew that God had made the way? Then you'd know. And if you knew, then the security isn't built on you. It's not built on your moralistic efforts. It's not built on your uh, brains, on how wise you were, that you figured it out. You were so smart. It's built on God and His amazing mercy, and it goes from a secure thing to an unbelievably secure thing because if God fixes it, friends, it's fixed. And if God is for you, who's against you? Let's go back to our pandemic illustration. In those pandemic movies, right? Imagine, it's just one person who's immune from the disease that's ravaging the entire world. That very special person. And what must be done with that very special person? We must draw their blood. For their blood contains the antibodies that make one immune to the disease. And on AC3, only Jesus lived a perfect life showing that he was immune to the disease of sin. Only Jesus, therefore, carries the vaccine in his blood, which was spilled out for you and for me. Only Jesus, and he's ready to share his vaccine with you, if you will, the faith and repentance, simply and humbly receive it. That's it. Now, maybe you're right on the edge of this. You're just right on the edge of it. But you can't go all the way over the edge because of one final question, and that's your nagging suspicion about who gets the cure and who doesn't get the cure. And that's the last question. Who gets the cure? In other words, you can't sign on for the cure until you know that the distribution of the cure has been totally fair. So many people object to the exclusivity of Jesus. We hear this over and over again in our investigations class because they don't feel the need, not, or sorry, not because they feel the need for it, because they're worried about the fairness of it. It's not because they don't think that Jesus is compelling. It's not because they can't look the case for Jesus and say, yeah, I think he was who he said he was. And it's not because they don't feel in themselves 
the diagnosis to be true and accurate. Yes, I'm separated from God. A sin separation. All that resonates with them. But they're hitched up on this one thing. How can the cure of Jesus be the right cure? Some people shut out from the cure by geography or history. Can't sign on. And friends, I say that's a tragedy if, that, if that's what would hold you up. Again, I guess let's go back to our apocalyptic movies in the movie Contagion. You remember I said one of the main conflicts in Contagion was that they had a vaccine. There just wasn't enough of it, so there was a lottery system. And can you imagine the chaos and the, and the violence that ensued as people are tripping over themselves to try to get into that system? And not everyone gets it. But friends, let's separate question number two. Is there a cure? From question number three, who gets the cure, practically speaking? Because look, if a vaccine works, it works. If a vaccine, it works even if the distribution of the vaccine isn't uniform through a population. Now, if your number came up in the fictitious lottery in this future dystopic world we've been talking about, would you say, this vaccine is useless? Why is it useless? Because that guy over there isn't... <laughs> no, you wouldn't say that. You would eagerly take it because you've seen it in others, and you need it, you know that you need it, and you'll worry about that guy next. The first thing you're going to do is take the vaccine. So the issue of distribution of the cure does not cancel the effectiveness of that cure. And effectiveness, by the way, but that another like 20 people or so are going to testify to next week in baptism right here in this room. And they're going to say, you know, I don't know about that guy in Timbuktu. I, I, I don't know all the ins that unreached pagan in Irian Jaya in Indonesia. I, I don't know how that all works, but I know that I have a disease. I know that I needed the cure. And I know that Jesus healed me. That's all I know. So I'm going under the waters. I'll worry about that guy next. Now, if that's not fully satisfying to you, I understand. We still want to know. We want to know, has God been unfair to limit salvation to people who are just born in the of Christian tradition, who are white or Western or European? And by the way, if you start thinking that like that, is such a really shallow understanding of church history, I'm sorry to say. The church and Christianity has never been white or Western or European. For the first 300 years, the locus of Christianity was where? Europe? No. Africa. Africa, for the first 300 years. And it will be again. In about 10 years, the average Christian on planet Earth is going to be dark-skinned and live south of the equator. The, 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 the center of Christianity has almost never been all white and Western and European. But be that as it may, friends, we still want to know, what about those people who have been left through no fault of their own outside the stream of Jesus' message? It's not a bad question. It's a good question. But let's understand something. That everybody on planet Earth, if we can't say that they've received this Jesus cure, they have all received some truth. For example, everybody's received the truth that is screaming out at us from creation. Because creation speaks to a designer, and that's why the reason why 90% of the world is theistic or in some sense believes in a God. Because, it, because nature, because nature is staring in the face, and nature has incredible design. And so creation is speaking a word to everybody, all seven billion of us, and not a single person's been left out of that truth. But then also everybody, all seven billion, of us get, get truth in the conscience that there not only is a God, but we are accountable morally to that God. The conscience speaks 
And sometimes it says, yes, that is right. And other times the conscience says, you, my friend, have done bad things. So there's a conscience, and then there's creation, and truth, uh, truth is being spoken to us from, from both those venues. Now, I understand that those two fall short of fully giving everyone the Christ cure. There's no question. But Jesus lays out an interesting promise, which applies to people who have never heard the cure. And I want you to hear it. From Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, he said, in the context of receiving truth, receiving revelation from God, he said, but the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. What's he saying? Jesus is saying that the revelation of truth has a, it's like a muscle. It has a use it or lose it quality to it. Use it, get more of it. Don't use it and find that what little you have goes away like a vapor. You become blind to it. And that's what Jesus is saying about revelation. So, implication, respond well to the revelation that 7 billion people get in creation and in conscience. And God will see fit to bring you more. And you will have, what's his word? More than enough. But reject or, or suppress the truth that's coming to you in creation and in conscience. And those small, natural, universal signposts, they'll evaporate in your life. And friends, that means there's hope in this promise that people unreached by the cure of the gospel can respond well to whatever revelation they do have. God's not going to hold people accountable for what they don't know. And God is able to bring them more revelation, the Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about in extended. I hope you hang around uh, for that, as he did. We're going to talk about the, the story of Cornelius and also many modern Christians, many of whom live today in countries closed to the Christian message, and yet they are being reached. Apparently, borders are no problem for God. And so, uh, for now, let's be clear on these three things. AC3. Everyone, everyone's got the disease. Everyone is a carrier, and we really have to settle on that, the inclusive problem, before we have to deal with the exclusive problem. Secondly, that Jesus offers the only vaccine because it's a specific disease, friends. It requires a specific cure. But the good news of that is simply that Christianity is not another self-improvement plan among seven billion other self-improvement plans. It is the promise that God himself has healed you. And on that assurance, you can know, you can know that heaven is yours. You say, How can, oh, I'm so insecure. What if it's not up to you? What if it has nothing to do with past failures or sin or rebellion? Would that change the game for you? I hope that it would. And finally, before you go pale at the thought of people missing out, remember God loves everybody. God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to the truth a hundred million times more than you do. And he can get truth to anyone, as we're finding out in the Bible and also just around the world today, across borders and into jungles because he's put people where he put them for the very specific purpose that they would reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from every single one of us. Let me pray for you. Of ourselves on this question about whether Jesus has authority to speak about salvation. And if he does, then Lord, give us humble hearts that will bow the knee and say, all right, Jesus, you're the way. Lord, as soon as we do that, I know, I know, we're going to experience an infusion of joy and peace 
Because finally, if it's his way, then it's a secure way. If it's his way, then it's done. It's finished. And Lord, I pray that the assurance of that kind of exclusivity would fall on the room today. And we would walk up from this moment rejecting fear and anxiety about what comes next. And we will be able to approach death even with the kind of bravery that our neighbors cannot know. And in this kind of certainty and security, may we march into the world with a hope and an urgency with a hope that the world desperately needs to know. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.